You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another edition of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Well, Ben, you're fresh back from your vacation to Maine. What do you got to have to say for yourself? That's your Maine accent? Uh, Aye, (laughs) ah? That's like like a 1930s newsie accent. This looks like a case of clear-cut murder to me, Jessica. (laughs) No, when you uh, start up your your radio program uh, where... Uh, a plucky detective solves uh, mysteries. I feel like that voice is going to come in handy. However, if that plucky detective is to be from Maine, you are in a world of shit, my friend, because that's not even close. Just another hard day out on the fishing boat. Aya. The aya is the only part that is even remotely close to what you're going for. Did your did your daughter ruin your wife's brother's wedding? Let's cut to the chase. Absolutely not. She was adorable. Uh, she, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you and say she made it through the whole ceremony. I'm not even going to lie to you and say she made it halfway through, but she did make it down the aisle with the help of her aunt, uh, without crying and sat on my lap for at least the first minute, minute and a half, uh, and then wanted to get down and run around. And when I wouldn't let her, she was clearly about to have a freak out. So I took a preemptive action and, uh, we went out in the front yard and we played and it was, it was delightful. That's adorable. I'd love to talk to you more about that, but we've got a lot of mixed martial arts news to cover during this hour-long oh, episode of they the still... Co-Main Event Podcast. Oh, I didn't know that. This week's music, Ben, comes to us from listener Ben Law and his band Love Parade. They play 1960s-inspired 90s power pop. What? What? So that's a cross-pollination of styles. Huh. Here's what he writes. We are a Sydney-based band, and I believe he means Sydney, Australia, not Sydney, Montana. Oh, okay. There's the, two. Yeah, the spellings are different. Okay. Uh, and he, he writes, and we are okay at the rock and roll. So with a cell like that, how could we not put them on the yeah, podcast? I feel like they're destined for stardom. If you like what you hear, you can find more of their music at soundcloud.com slash love parade suicide cult, which is different than the name of the band love parade that I was emailed by Ben law. So I don't know if we're dealing with a name change or maybe suicide cult is the name of an album or something. Or maybe there's a darker side to this band that we don't know about. That could be three rounds this week, as usual for the co-main event podcast in round number one. Honestly, you're doing more marketing for him than the USC ever has. And in round number two, dear Bellator, the point of having a dude wear a mask is that when he's unmasked, we're supposed to know who he is. Otherwise, maybe just go without the mask. Sincerely, the CME. And in round number three, you know, when Ben Askren fell out with the UFC and signed with 1FC back in December, we all thought he might just fade into the scenery. Boy, were we wrong. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Rob L. He writes, I hope with all the MMA news you gents will be discussing this week, the women of Invicta get some love. Not only did they once again put on a spectacular show, but they also got me to do the unthinkable sign up for Fight Pass. Now, granted, I'll probably cancel that crap before the free seven days is up. But here is a chance that I'll but there's a chance that I'll get lazy and just let it lapse and end up paying for it forever. But my question for you boys is this. What sort of long term growth do you see as a viable future for Invicta? Are they kind of the de facto feeder league to the UFC for any and all female fighters now? Doesn't that kind of make Shannon Knapp and Julie Kedzie just independent scouts for Zufa? I really want them to succeed as an organization because damn, they put on a rocking show. Uh, so some problems this week with the Invicta stream over on the Fight Pass. So I heard. I heard. Uh, you heard, you, come on, you're still, you're still gonna pretend like you're not watching Fight Pass. Still I, doing that? I heard that they had some problems with the stream over no on the Fight it. Pass. Doesn't that kind of make you feel like Invicta is cursed or something? Like they couldn't get you stream to, to work, right? There was, there was numerous problems with the, with the streaming on you stream. And now we, they got onto the fightpass.com. Uh, and we all thought, well, this is great. Now they'll have a dependable, reliable broadcast partner in the fightpass.com. And, uh, uh, I see what you're doing there. The, the next thing you know, boom, Invicta stream issues strike again. Okay. Wait, from what I heard, the stream issue was basically just like kind of the most important moment of the main event. But yeah. Uh, just, to, just during the main event, I heard. Right. But not like a, you know, just systemic throughout the entire thing stream issue, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I only went back and watched the main event anyway, full disclosure. That was all. Well, I I don't know. I watched a couple fights from there, but you know, there's a couple fights worth watching, but, uh, I mean, I guess that is really unfortunate timing. Uh, and maybe that's kind of, maybe it was a thing of too many people trying to get on there and watch it at once. Who knows? I was intrigued by the quote I saw from Ann Evans that, uh, that they're going to make it up to people because we've heard the UFC promised to make stuff up to, to fans before and I can't recall too many times when fans have said, oh yes, I feel like they just made it up to me. Well, they're offering 10% off a of future UFC pay-per-view. Is that the only thing they're doing? Because, or they're going to do more than that? I was unaware that, that, that they said that they were going to make it up to people. The only thing I saw was that they're offering a, a 10% discount on a, on a pay-per-view. Just to everybody? To everyone who had trouble with the stream, I don't, I don't know the details. Okay. I gotta be honest with you. All right. Well, you know, that would actually be something. At least that's a gesture. Uh, but I don't know. I wouldn't go so far as to say Invicta is cursed. As far, I mean, some of that is just like, how many other fight organizations can you name that have only streamed online? Like, that's probably going to come with some problems. Uh, and, I also think, though, that as far as the question, uh, does it make them a, a de facto feeder league? I mean, in some weight classes, I'd say yes, but not necessarily as the entire organization. Right. I mean, like Michelle Watterson, uh, 105-pounder, you know, she she doesn't really have the option unless she wants to go significantly up in weight uh, to go over there to the UFC and compete. So I, I don't think that it's that's necessarily a huge concern for Invicta right now. Uh, I mean, can they just stay on Fight Pass and and make a living at it and keep keep the doors open and the lights on? I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. I kind of don't see why not if they keep their costs manageable and they don't seem to be trying to grow out of control at this point. I mean, they don't even have that many employees. Yeah. And for those of you that did have stream issues, the only thing you missed was Michelle Watterson just beating the brakes off of Yasuko Tamada, uh, whose age is unknown. We're left. We're left to believe. They didn't know how old she was on the broadcast. I'm gonna and, be honest with you. She looked old. Yeah, and her her birthday is not listed on her Wikipedia page. And she did come to the cage looking 
Uh, as Chris Rock would say, not necessarily old, but just too old to be in the club. Like she looked <laughs> not not old, but like too old to be fighting someone in a professional fight. Yeah, yeah, that was that was surprising to me. And then when I heard that we had like some sort of you know Dominican little leaguer questions about uh, her actual age, I'm just gonna say that uh, there are certain circumstances where you lie to make yourself seem older, and other circumstances where you lie to make yourself seem younger. And some circumstances, apparently, where you're just hoping nobody really asks. This seems to be that one. Uh, and I agree with Rob L., who writes that the Invicta uh, a fighting organization puts on a good show. And I think that, you know, we're left with the impression, especially after watching this Adam Waite title fight, that, you know, there there's a fair amount of talent uh, coming to light now in, in the women's MMA, different divisions, aside from 135 pounds, which the UFC has, they're about to add 115 pounds with this upcoming season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and obviously, Michelle Watterson seems like a star down at, at 105. Um, do you think that the UFC, do you think we see a day that the UFC adds these women's divisions? And uh, would it be better off trying to uh, staff all of these, you know, the, the, the 50 or so shows that it's going to do this year. Would the UFC be better off to have more women's divisions at these different weights and therefore be able to, uh, uh, you know, in theory, offer us more meaningful fights in different weight classes than like the thing that it does now where half of the prelims and even a couple of the main card, uh, broadcasts are going to be between a couple of guys that you've never heard of before and a fight of like questionable stakes. Yeah, it, in theory, it sounds like that would be better, doesn't it? But it does. But then you start to wonder if it, if really what you're doing is you just kind of continue to water down the 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 product and like kind of devalue the titles or something. If you have like twenty of them or fifteen, or just make it too difficult for people to follow all the different divisions that you have. I mean, I I know already like a lot of the the casual fans and stuff I know or, or people who are not or who were super into it at one point and maybe now uh, only pay attention when big stuff seems to be happening it already seems hard enough for people to keep straight okay this guy is welterweight or lightweight or middleweight you know and and when you add it all the way down to, to 125 pounds and then you start adding all the different women's divisions i think it is going to get confusing for people who don't follow this stuff for a living like you and i do although you're right i mean it does seem like it would be better to have like more of these sorts of divisions where you can be constantly having some kind of number one contender right. fight or title See, fight. See, that's the thing. Like, as we discuss it, we talk about how confusing it would be. I feel like the product as it exists now is confusing. And I, and I honestly don't know as we record this, like, if it would be more confusing or less confusing to have more weight classes and more titles and to think that um, more of the broadcasted fights would be more meaningful. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you wouldn't, you might have like a, a women's atom weight number one contender fight, uh, opening up a pay per view instead of having, you know, uh, Matt Mitrione against Derek Lewis or something. I don't know why I used that as, as an example, maybe because I just watched it again this, this, this morning, but like, uh, that, nothing wrong with that heavyweight fight. But that's it, the in, Black Beast versus Matt Matrione, dog. In the end, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean a lot in the, in the heavyweight d division. Uh, I probably could have used a better example, but like, would it be better or worse to have a, a, a more meaningful fight? But I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about. More meaningful fights, but more divisions. Yeah. Less confusing, more conf I'm just confused myself. You are confused. I shouldn't have brought this up. This whole conversation is confusing. We'll just have to record over this or something. Let's pretend it never just happened. Just do a second on. take. Yeah. We don't do that here. Uh, all right. Let's do the, the next listener mail from Anthony Prokopchuk. 
uh, also known as the guy who wrote the co-main event title theme of the podcast. I, I'd go One, so far as to call him a friend of the show. Friend of the podcast. He writes, so Joe Rogan is saying that John Jones would be more popular if he was white. But is it really that simple? Remember when Dana White threw Johnny Bones under the bus for the cancellation of UFC 151? Or that time a quote-unquote social media firm hacker thief used JBJ's phone to post homophobic comments that on was some unfortunate. random Swedish kid's Instagram account? Or the thing where he got wasted and wrapped his Bentley around a telephone pole? Come on, man. If a UFC fan is looking for a reason to dislike John Jones, it seems like they've got a lot of options. Is attributing to John Jones's inability to, quote, move a needle, uh, is attributing John Jones's inability to move the needle to racism an oversimplification of a complex issue? Please discuss. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't know that I could have explained it any better than, than Anthony Prokopchuk just did. Uh, I feel like it would be naive for us to discount race and racism as a, a potential limiting factor uh, for a champion like John Jones because, uh, you know, the overwhelming audience of mixed martial arts has always been white and, and uh, white dudes. As, I think that's the sociological term is right, white, dudes. white dudes as, as Ben Goldstein, I thought sort of eloquently wrote on cage potato today uh, that like to be, to be really over in the MMA, you have to appeal to white dudes. Uh, which is that's the scientific term, but I mean, I feel like as by the way, this, people should read that case. Yeah, that's thing. that's a that's a good uh, that's a good post, dude. Do you know what the title is? It's like sixteen. Find that while I'm talking. Yeah, sixteen uh, is definitely in the title. <laughs> Anthony Anthony Prokopchuk, I think, explains it pretty well here. Uh, John Jones uh, has given people a lot of reasons to dislike him. I mean, we always kind of stick up for him. I feel like on this show, feel like his his greatness as a fighter is. Uh, vastly underappreciated by people just because they seem to not like him as a human being. Um, and it's hard to say how much of that could be attributed to, to racism. But, uh, certainly if you're looking for a reason to dislike John Jones, he's, he's gone above and beyond the call of duty to give us some additional factors, right? Yeah. Well, by the way, the title is 16 semi-related thoughts about race and combat sports that Ben Goldstein wrote for Cage Potato. And it is definitely worth a read. Uh, some interesting points he raises there. I mean, I think that, uh, it's always going to be a mistake to say like MMA fans feel this way about this guy for the, these reasons right. uh, or this one reason. I mean, because some people might not feel that way. Some people might feel that way for different reasons. But I do think that uh, it'd be, you know, like you said, kind of naive to just say race has nothing to do with it. And one of the, th the things I hear people saying on Twitter a lot is like, well, look at these other popular uh, black fighters that the UFC has had or that have been around in MMA that proves that therefore there can be no racism on the <laughs> part of fans. And that just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Uh, I mean, I, I also though agree, you know, uh, Anthony Prokopchuk makes very valid points that you could choose any one of those reasons. Uh, however, like Joe Rogan, I, I think is not completely off base when he makes a, a comparison between John Jones and Chael Sonnen and how differently that might have been taken uh, if, Chelsona was a black dude and John Jones was a white dude. Uh, so, I mean, I, I do think that there is a racial element to that. And uh, I think that's definitely affecting some people's perceptions, maybe not everybody's perceptions, and maybe not all to the same degree. Uh, but let's not pretend like it's not even a, a goddamn possibility. Right. Yeah. And we don't want to paint with a with a broad brush, like you said. One of the things that would that gives me cause to suspect that there is like a, a racial element of people's dislike for John Jones, though, is the idea that people have disliked John Jones forever. Like yeah. they disliked him as immediately as he sh as soon as he showed up 
on the scene as soon as he started to gain really any notoriety at all. And it seems like the reasons given for disliking John Jones have changed over time. Yeah. You know, like when he first broke onto the scene, people said they didn't like him because they thought he was fake because he did act totally humble and kind of like, uh, unassuming and, uh, would always try to be really polite and like, uh, uh, you know, give tons of credit to his opponent and not really, uh, brag and, and do all kinds of stuff like that. And people said he was fake. And then it's like kind of slowly over time, you saw this, you saw that, that personality kind of crack and, you know, we would see through the, the facade and he did start to seem like, like an arrogant dude, like a guy who's the greatest MMA fighter in the world almost, you well, know? I mean, but that's yeah, like that, that I think is the weakest criticism, the arrogance thing. Like, Right. I'm just like, saying it's changed over time. Like at the start, people true. hated him because they said he was fake. And then all, when he started to sh- like show more of his actual personality, then everyone hated him because he was arrogant. And it's like, man, you can't hate him for both reasons. <laughs> well, I mean, look at a, another black fighter and Rashad Evans, who the like the most popular Rashad Evans has ever been with the the bulk of the UFC's fan base is when he fought John Jones. Uh, other than that, Rashad Evans had a tough time. And I would say like in a a really undeserved tough time because Rashad Evans, when you talk to him a lot, he seems like a really good dude, a really thoughtful, uh, smart guy. Really, when you're interviewing him, you get the impression that he's really taking his time to think about your questions and his answers to them. Uh, and it's really interesting to talk to one of my favorite guys to interview for those reasons. But also, I mean, remember when he knocked out Chuck Liddell and it was the criticism was, oh, this, you know, the, the heart clutching celebration he did, uh, that, oh, he's cocky. Same thing Matt Hughes, it's, oh, he's showboating when he's on the Ultimate Fighter, that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Chuck Liddell knocks a dude out, runs around the cage three goddamn times, making his, his Conan the Barbarian hand signal, and people love it. You know, like, I think that kind of stuff sometimes gives you a clue that, yeah, this, we don't always have the, the, the fan base doesn't always have the same expectations or apply the same metric to the same fighters. And race sometimes has something to do with it. I mean, it doesn't always, it's not the answer for every, every question there is out there. Uh, but also it's worth considering. I mean, if you're not even, if you hear that, like, that theory basically put forth by Joe Rogan and your first response is no way, absolutely not. You're not willing to consider it. You should take a step back because that might be a sign that there's something there worth considering. You should at least evaluate it for a second. Third question this week comes to us from Ben Olin. He writes, is it possible that UFC and Bellator going head to head didn't hurt one or the other, but helped both at the same time with notable fights on both programs? Didn't it give MMA viewers more reason to be at home and watching MMA, no matter what channel you're primarily focused on? Personally, I DVR'd both and flipped back and forth while the other was running a NOS or another commercial for the 18,000th time. You only live once, boys. I'm sure there's not enough snark in this email to be read, but... Uh, oh, shows what think, you know. We're reading it right now. It's a fair thought, smiley face. Uh, I had actually had this same exact thought, especially when the ratings came out. And uh, I know Dave Meltzer authored a piece over on MMA Fighting Today, which I didn't really get the chance to read yet, but kind of... Uh, putting forth the idea that maybe Bellator and the UFC essentially have different audiences because both uh, fight shows pretty much like garnered the same numbers that they always garner, like in that neighborhood for their, for their shows. The Bellator just did, I think just did over 600,000 average and, and the UFC was up around 900,000 average. Uh, so yeah, it didn't seem to hurt either of them to have their shows on the same night. Although the UFC did move back at start time uh, a couple of days before the event so that they didn't really go 
uh, exactly head to head. In fact, I, I would say for Bellator, um, I came away from this event feeling like it was actually kind of a good thing for them to be on the same night as the UFC and like directly precede the UFC and, uh, wrap up about the same time that the UFC was starting because, um, clearly it didn't boost, really boost their ratings at all, but I felt like there was more, uh, chatter about the Bellator show and about the Bellator product than you normally see, like, uh, during one of their normal Friday night shows if there's nothing else going on on TV that night. I think you're definitely right about that because just having this UFC versus Bellator, you know, thing on Friday, uh, that made it, that was the conversation rather than just talking about the UFC event or just, you know, just talking about or not talking about the Bellator event. So it did do that. I really found that interesting though, because I, I also saw that Dave Meltzer story about the idea that maybe they're just completely different people watching this stuff. But then also this question that, Hey, if you're going to sit, if you, if you hear that there's some, some fights on on Friday and God knows they give you plenty of opportunities to skip around, uh, with the same commercials over and over again. So, yeah, maybe it was in that sense a really good thing for Bellator to have you you already home there on the couch because you're going to watch Alistair Overeem and Ben Rothwell uh find out who has the the better chin. So hey, you might as well flip over there and see if there's a guy in a mask in a cage yet. Right. Uh it seems inconceivable that there that the UFC and Bellator just have completely different audiences, right? But aren't we talking like have like, we have you ever about- met a person who's just like, "Yeah, man, I just watch Bellator." Like, have you ever met that person? <laughs> Didn't we just, though, talk about the that the thing that Bellator has going for them on Spike that the UFC doesn't have yet with Fox Sports 1 is that people think of Spike, especially perhaps white dudes, that that demographic again, uh, think of Spike as a, as a channel that has fights on. Yes. Uh, yes. And so couldn't it be that that is a different demographic than the demographic of the one that's like, Oh man, Derek Lewis and uh, Matt Matrion should be starting right now on FS1. I better get over there. Yeah, it is popular, but th- I mean that idea has always seemed bizarre to me that you would be into a thing as kind of obscure as mixed martial arts, a thing that if you're going to be really into it, you kind of have to work on it. And, like certainly <laughs> in years past, yeah. you would have to like kind of go out of your way to like to find MMA junkie or find MMA fighting or sure dog or or something like that. Uh it seems weird that you would be able to be really into one of the companies and like just not watch the other one unless maybe you don't even get that channel which is probably true for for a lot of people uh the next question comes to us from josh derringer he writes is it time to label alistair overeem as a heavyweight jonathan goulet ouch a highly skilled fighter but one whose chin could never match his physical tools Dude, just a rough go for Alistair Overeem during this UFC run. Really couldn't have gone much worse for the Ream, uh, who last Saturday night or last Friday night, excuse me, got, uh, uh, knocked out by Ben Rothwell, um, in a fight that seemed to go like Alistair Overeem version 3.0 fights typically go where he looks good. It seems like he's winning and then he gets knocked out. Yeah, it's one of those things that makes you wonder that old question we ask sometimes is, did he just reach that point where his chin started to go? Or has he always had that issue with the chin and we just didn't see it exploited as often? Or another possibility, did we just think more of Alistair Overeem than we should have because of the quality of competition he was fighting when he really uh, started to gain a lot of momentum? Because if you remember back, that was the criticism, right? Like before... Uh, he came over to the UFC via Strike Force. Was that he was over there in Japan, where staying out of the United States, out of North America, where he might be drug tested, and in so doing was you know doing a lot of can crushing. 
uh, or a it, lot, you know, yeah. or when he was fighting, uh, you know, tough dudes like guys like like Todd Duffy or something, it was they them taking it on short notice, or he's over there in kickboxing or something, you know. So there were always those kind of questions. So it's possible that maybe we got a, a different concept of the guy. It's also though possible that man, we're talking about some heavyweights who are just going to get in there and throw them things, and it, you know, it's kind of a, a coin flip some of the time because it does seem like he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, and he takes a good shot and he goes down. But man, that could kind of happen to most heavyweights. It seems. Yeah, and his run through uh, Dream and and Glory and Dynamite uh, over there after he beat Paul Buentello for the Strike Force Heavyweight Championship back in 2007. I mean, he fights Lee Tae Hoon, Mark Hunt. He has a no contest against Crow Cop. He beats Gary Goodridge, Tony Sylvester, James Thompson, uh, Fujita, Brett Rogers, Todd Duffy, and then he goes back to Strike Force and beats Verdum. Uh, and then starts his UFC run. So yeah, not a lot of, uh, what you might call A-list heavyweights on that list before he, he gets back to strike force, at least. And also, like, we might as well just talk about it. He comes into the UFC looking large and in charge, fights Brock Lesnar, TKOs him in the first round, ends up failing a drug test. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after that kind of turns into the incredible shrinking overream, uh, over the next two or three years. And now, then he goes on this, you know, one in three tear where like, honestly, he looks like a different guy, not only physically, but, uh, just his kind of like his mannerisms and maybe his confidence in the ring. Uh, well, you know, when he was over in, in Japan, especially like the Todd Duffy fight where didn't they have to sneak Todd Duffy into Japan to take that fight? Yeah, uh, yeah and, there's and something weird about that. Overeem just looked like just a beast, man. Ended up beating him in 19 seconds. Uh, he's just like you compare that guy to the guy you see in the cage now, uh, who's into his mid 30s and, 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 uh, you know, uh, is looking svelte and rolling around at 245 instead of having to cut weight to make the 265 pound limit. Uh, it's, it's possible that there were a lot of factors going into the, uh, runaway success of Overeem version 2.0, uh, not the least of which may have been uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, you know, I really want to give more credence to that theory because it really logically makes sense that, hey, after this guy got busted and had to be on his best behavior, suddenly he started kind of sucking. But it's also, it's not like he's getting just completely run over in these fights. Like, No, I mean, that's why I'm saying good. I think it affects his confidence, too. Like. Uh, you know, maybe 265 pound over him would have stopped Ben Rothwell during those opening minutes where he was looking good and landing shots and, and, and coming forward. Yeah. I don't know. I'm it's just, a, I'm just saying. Can I tell you from my perspective, uh, since I didn't get to watch this one live, we had the rehearsal dinner and then, uh, had to go to some weird bar in Maine, uh, where everybody what do you was. you gents have for the, <laughs> for your drinks tonight? God, it's so terrible. It's a two for one ladies night tonight. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, so I was just kind of looking on my phone. I wasn't even going to pretend like I could avoid spoilers on this one until I got home. And then I, I got the email. You know, the USC will send out the quotes afterwards. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily tell you who wins, but you look at the quotes and there's a re- really long quote from Ben Wathwell. Like the problem, maybe the longest quote I've ever seen the USC email, like seemed like three paragraphs worth of quotes uh, about everything he was thinking and feeling in that fight. And then the quote from Alistair Overeem was just said, I was not out. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I feel like I know what happened here. Alistair Overeem was totally out. Uh, did you get the chance to watch Ben Rothwell's post-fight interview where he blamed or like he credited the media for overlooking him and picking against him? And uh, then later in his interview with Ariel Helwani, uh, Helwani asked him about that. And Overeem said he was fired up because he turned on Fox. Rothwell. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Rothwell uh, was fired up because he turned on Fox and all of the guys sitting at the desk picked against him. 
Uh, and that's who he meant when he said that he was calling out the MMA media. Wow. Wait, that, okay, I heard that he, I heard the first part that, right, he, that yeah. he felt like people were all picking against him, which by the way, Ben Rothwell, if you're listening and I assume you are because IFL never die, but I picked Ben Rothwell in this one. Well, uh, good, so good for you. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm skull and crossbones sticker for the back of your helmet for that one. That's right. Uh, but man, is that true? Did he specify that that's what he meant by the MMA media was the dude with would, the Fox Sports I would desk? have to watch it again, but that was like the first thing he brought up when he asked him the question about why did he call it the media? Like he, he made it sound as though when he said that he meant the dudes at the Fox Sports hmm. desk well, I'll tell who you, are not the media. No. Dare I, dare I point out? That's right. Uh, state run TV over there. But, uh, I know Ben Rothwell. I've known him for years since the IFL days. I will tell you, he's one of those guys that'll probably want to act like he doesn't read all the websites and read all the blogs, but he reads them all. Like he probably follows more like a, a more obscure MMA blogs than you do, Chad Dundas. So uh, I think he probably has a pretty good fix on on the MMA media at large. Last question this week comes from Cesar Fernandez. He writes, after his TKO loss to Joe Lausen, Michael Chiesa told MMA Junkie, quote, I would give that $50,000 back just to be able to go the rest of the fight. First of all, I don't believe him, <laughs> but that's not my point. The thing is, I don't get why fighters act almost as if it doesn't count when they lose by a doctor stoppage due to a cut. If a medical doctor has to step in and stop the fight because you have such a humongous cut in your head that your health is in serious danger, it looks pretty clear to me that you lost the fight. Uh, should we put an asterisk by the fights or give the winner credit and move on? Well, first of all, credit to Cesar Fernandez for throwing the term medical doctor in there just to make it seem so we know what we're dealing with. Also, the also the term humongous cut, which I think is a medical term. <laughs> well, OK, about the thing, like, first of all, it did seem weird. Like, we've seen worse cuts and the fights allowed this one to go was on. pretty bad, dude. Yeah, I mean, it's not anything that you want on your face. I'm not going to pretend that. But I can also see, I think it's a totally legitimate way to win a fight. And if you're the winner, you take that one walking away and you claim full credit for it. And if you're the loser, I can absolutely see how you would feel like you were cheated out of something. Uh, so, I mean, I can kind of see it both ways. However, I don't think it's anything that we, the public, need to, to put an asterisk next to or to say like, oh, yeah, he, he just won on a technicality. If you win a fight that way, you won. You get to keep that, as we like to say over here on the CME podcast. Uh, and the loser gets to complain about it, uh, but only to a point. Yeah, I agree with you. And Michael Chiesa and Joe Lozon kind of got into it on the on the social medias. Uh, they have since squashed the beef. Already, I believe. Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, come on, think about who you're dealing with. It's a here. pretty quick turnaround. Like Jay Lau and and Michael Chiesa are not the kind of dudes that are probably going to have a protracted social media beef. In fact. I think when they squashed it, Michael Chiesa made reference to how he didn't want to have a social media beef with another fighter. He did, however, post an, I believe it was an Instagram message because it was too long to be on Twitter, but it was pretty awesome, uh, in that it, he, he told Joe Lauzon that if he had a problem with his statement about how he would give $50,000 to go back out there and finish the fight, then Lauzon could get on a plane and fly to Spokane, Washington okay. and come take the $50,000 out of his hands. Which is the kind of thing that you only write if you live in a place as awesome as Spokane. Um, question to Michael Chiesa. Do you have $50,000 in cash right now? Well, Do you, can you put your hands on $50,000 in cash? Because that's the, the first they, thing they I want to know. They won the fight of the night. On. They won the fight of the night. Did they not? Well, first of all, you got to pass your drug test to get that money. Come on. Second of all, you got to pay out, uh, you know, you got to pay your, your management and stuff like that. Uh, got to put aside some for taxes. 
So I'm just saying, if I'm Joe Lozon, I want to see the money first before I get on a plane to Spokane. Because what happens? You get all the way out there, and he's like, "Okay, look, I have 32 grand. I could owe you the rest, man." Then you're already in Spokane. There's not shit to do. Yeah, you can take your lady out to the steam plant grill. Go to Dick's for some hamburgers. Get, get some dicks in your mouth. Get a couple of handfuls of dicks. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that, that that message obviously was posted while they were beefing and the beef has since been squashed, which I think we're all, we can all rest easy. I guess it actually does make sense that it could be squashed because we're recording on a Tuesday. The fight was on a Friday instead of a Saturday. So yeah, it's they've basically, had a lot of time. It's basically like squashing it the Wednesday after a normal UFC event, which is, I guess, permissible. Right on the, right in the normal time frame for beef squashage. Yeah. That's the window for beef squashage. Uh, I did feel a little bit weird. I think Dana White said after the fight that he didn't think it would have been stopped in, in, uh, Las Vegas. Uh, it, this, this was kind of a bummer stoppage because those dudes were having a pretty epic and awesome fight and it seemed like they were kind of just getting going. Yeah. They're midway through the second. It did when, not uh, seem like yes, it was done by any means. Yeah. When, when, when the fight got stopped. Do we want to see this again? There had been some, I guess this is what started the beef. There had been some talk right. about a rematch and, and Lozon kind of, poo-pooed it and said he was just going to take his win and and move on to the next guy he's going to win a bonus against yeah i I mean i can understand why lozon would feel that way and i also can understand why you know you just don't want to keep doing rematches over and over again um but here's one where i would have to say what else you got going on joe lozon because i don't feel like you know the lightweight division being as it is right now we've talked about this in the past like it's not like you're going to be in line for a title shot next. I mean, you might as well take make some more money and wait till the, the picture clears itself up a little bit. Like, what else? What are you really missing out on in that way? This is obviously a discussion, another discussion for another day, and we're kind of running out of time here. But as I was watching this fight, and they got into that kind of protracted ground struggle in the first round, that was pretty where awesome. Lozon right? was doing his his ground thing, which yes, is awesome. Was. It just dawned on me again how fucking good these guys are at this shit because. Joe Lozon, kind of an, like, I, w- I don't want to say afterthought in the lightweight division, but like, as you said, not an immediate contender, not a guy who's going to fight for the title. And yet he would kill everyone you know. Yes. Like, he's so good. And it's just kind of like, I guess that speaks to the talent of the lightweight division, but also like, how good you have to be to be one of these UFC mainstay top of the food chain guys. Like, everyone, not to, not to, uh, disparage the guys that you go to jujitsu with, but he would murder all of them. Exactly. And, like, like Kiesa is a good grappler. If Kiesa came over here and was to roll into one of the, the jiu-jitsu gyms here in Missoula, Montana, he would wreck everybody. Uh, you know, maybe Brandon Olsen would give him some trouble, but everybody else, you know, he, he runs through him. And then here he is with Joe Lozon. He's got his back. Lozon escapes and goes to mount and takes his back in the span of about 15 seconds. Uh, yeah, that, that does kind of put some of that stuff in perspective for you. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to our website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll put you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Ronaldo Jacare Souza 
went out there and handled his biz nass against Gegard Mousasi this past weekend. Uh, ended up defeating him by guillotine choke in the third round of their main event fight at UFC Fight Night 50. Uh, and it just seems like Jacare is the kind of dude who's maybe a little bit too nice to come out and start saying people's names and demanding stuff. But I'm going to ask you to play UFC matchmaker here to open up this round. Let's say Chris Weidman emerges from his December showdown with Vitor Belfort with the title. Well, hell, no matter who wins, who do you put in as the number one contender uh, for the next shot of the title? Would it be Jacare Souza or uh, Luke Rockhold, assuming that he beats Michael Bisping in their upcoming fight? Or do you have a wild card for me? No, man, I go Jacare. Jacare all the way. Yeah, me too. No, there's no question about it. Um, I think that it's possible that Chris Weidman might turn out to be a really, really bad matchup for Jacare, and we can talk about that uh, maybe more as this as this round progresses. But I also, and I, I wrote a thing on Bleacher Report uh, last week about this, I also feel like Jacare is kind of the most in- interesting middleweight contender right now, especially since... You know, post TRT ban, we don't know which version of Vitor Belfort is going to show up at the end of the year to fight Weidman. If he shows up as kind of a depleted guy and he reverts back into the guy that for years and years, uh, opponents kind of knew how to beat him, kind of had the, the blueprint of how to beat Belfort, then I, I, I think it's, it's Jacare in a, in a walk as the most interesting and potentially dangerous, uh, threat to, to Weidman's title reign right now. Are you when you say interesting, are you mostly talking about the mystique that you have granted him by whispering his name as if it is a, a men's fragrance? Jacare. The shoes by Musasi, the fragrance by Jacare. <laughs> uh yes and no. Like I I kind of think that I like the whole package there. Yeah. The gator walk into the cage is dope. Uh you know, he uh he's one of the he's he, I think Jordan Breen said something on Twitter about how uh he's the the best combination of athletic horsepower and technical grappling that he's ever seen in MMA, which I think is an apt way to describe Jacare because he seems to be of a different breed than the than the like quote unquote world jujitsu champions that we typically see in MMA. Like Jacare just appears to be a professional athlete. Dude. Yeah. And and also just happens to be uh dope as hell on the ground. And not to mention the fact has the takedowns, both like judo sweeps and straight ahead wrestling takedowns to get the fight down there into his domain where you find out they don't call him the alligator for nothing. Well, it also seems like he's at a point right now where like it's kind of the sweet spot in jujitsu guy transitioning to MMA because they all seem to go through this point, right? Like where they come in, they're the pure jujitsu guy. They're submitting guys up until they get to the point where they're facing a, a tougher brand of competition. Uh, and they, they've honed their, their striking game, uh, until it's like a new toy that they want to play with maybe a little too much. Uh, and then, you know, maybe come, the pendulum swings back and they realize, oh, wait a minute, my striking is for when I have to be on the feet or to help set me up to get to where I want to be on the ground. And then, you know, we get what, you get what we see here where he's just kind of a goddamn killer. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that he's kind of at that point now and he wasn't, when he fought uh, and lost that close decision to Luke Rockhold in Strike Force, I feel like that was a like an earlier version of Jacare, and that's why I mean you, I can see why Luke Rockhold would get pissed off to feel like he's getting passed over for a guy who he he beat, but it does feel like Jacare presents the the more 
interesting puzzle right now that we'd like to see answered in the title fight. Well, let's talk about the scheduling here in a minute because Dana White certainly stopped short of saying Jacare was going to be the number one contender. In fact, he implied that he was going to have to take another fight uh, just because of timing purposes. But before we move on to that, I want to talk just briefly about Jacare's striking because you just brought it up. And Jacare's striking is weird. Like, clearly the game that he wants is to use those strikes to, like, set up his clinch game, get you up against the fence, uh, just be beast in 28-15 or whatever the, the, the nickname is on you. Uh, and then use, That's use, so much beast and no one could possibly beast that much. Use his sweeps and his takedowns to put you on the ground. But like, and I don't know if it's that, that, you know, his clinch work and his groundwork kind of wore Musasi down, but even in the striking exchanges in this fight, those weird haymakers that Jacare throws, which don't look like they should work, but if you happen to get in front of them, look like they hurt. Uh, he got the better of the striking here against Gegard Musasi, a guy that you would think with his, his kickboxing background, uh, that would be his world. Or you would think that if he was going to win the fight, that would be his best chance to win. Right. right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that uh, there is a lot to, to like there. Uh, I also, though, think that, you know, it's one of those situations where if you do want to have Jacare fight somebody else in the meantime, you know, who? Because you get in that same situation that you're looking at with Alexander Gustafson and Anthony Johnson and those guys in another division, which is that if you're going to have him fight somebody, in order for it not to feel like just a like a placeholder bout where you're tempting the MMA gods for something terrible to happen, then he's got to fight another guy who's right there in the running for number one contender. You know, a, a guy like Luke Rockhold, right. if he beats Bisping, um, like that would be a good fight to determine uh, – you know, who is the number one contender who without a doubt deserves to fight for the title next. But then if you do that, you kind of limit your options going forward because you've knocked down at least one of those guys. Right. Uh, so, I mean, it does put you in that position. I mean, I, it sounds like Jacques Array, you know, he definitely thinks he deserves to fight for the title. Uh, not one of those guys who feels like he has to fight every six weeks or something and, and doesn't care about, uh, working his way up the ladder. Seems like he would be willing to wait for a little while, uh, if that's what it takes. So, I don't see why you wouldn't make that fight. Yeah, I think your only options are the winner of that Luke Rockhold, Michael Bisping fight, or potentially, potentially the winner of, uh, Tim, Tim Kennedy versus Yoel Romero, which that's at 178, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I keep forgetting is coming up. And then when I remember it, I go, Oh shit. That's going to be great. Yeah, and and but Jacare has already fought Luke Rockhold, lost to him in Strike Force in 2011. He's already fought Tim Kennedy, uh, fought him in 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 uh, August of 2010. Uh, if Yoel Romero happens to beat Tim Kennedy, that would be kind of an interesting matchup. That would be. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I don't think Jacare really has a heck of a lot more he could prove ab- about his relative fitness as to being a, a, a ch- title challenger. But let's talk about a potential meeting with Chris Weidman. I think we all expect Weidman will at least be the favorite when he comes into this fight against Vitor Belfort in December. Uh, is does, the fact that both Jacare and Weidman kind of have evolving striking games and that uh, Weidman would at least on paper have the wrestling credentials to kind of stonewall uh, Jacare's jiu-jitsu slash judo game if that's what he wanted to do, does that make... Does that do you fall in line with the reasoning that that makes Weidman a bad matchup for Jacare? I think Weidman's a bad matchup for most people in the well, middleweight division. So, he is the champion. Yeah. After all. I, I, so I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say I think he's a, a really favorable matchup for Jacare. But then again, I think from what we've seen of Weidman so far, uh, one of the things that we learned, I think, in that Leona Machida fight is that he has a really good chin yeah. and is not afraid to make use of it uh, when he needs to. And so. 
I don't know. Maybe the guy who gives him the most problems is a a really technical grappling ace who can who can nab him in a submission there if it gets to the floor. Especially if you're in there mixing it up with him and you get him to the point where you know he he either thinks takedown because he wants to win the round or because he feels like things aren't going well for him on the feet. You know whatever. If he gets into that that ground game either by his choice or by Jacare's then it becomes a, a completely different question for him. I and mean, I think that we've learned that you're not just going to land one good shot on Chris Weidman and knock him out, at least not at this point. So I don't know. I, I think that that's one of the things that you have to do with those champions is find a test for them that pre- presents something different. But that's the, the appeal, I think, for a lot of the fans. It's not like we just see this guy fighting the same dude over and over again. Have him fight somebody who uh, does something a little different, can threaten him with something different. And I think Jacques Array is that guy right now. Yeah, and athletically, I would really be excited to watch those two guys fight each other because I think they're both these sort of like uh, new generation MMA athletes that you see coming into the fold now in in, in the UFC. Uh, and that's like Jacare. Chris Weidman is the same. They're both guys that come from these uh, disciplines, wrestling and jujitsu, but they're both guys that every time they go out there, they're just so athletically gifted that it seems like they've improved 100%. They look almost like... Uh, completely different guys, uh, you know, f- from fight to fight. Uh, so I would be interested in to see, uh, just a couple of guys like that mix it up. I think that that would be fun. And with the, you know, the myriad ways that things can get fucked up in this support, I hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, I hope that we do, in fact, get to see Jacare fight the winner of, uh, Chris Weidman versus Vitor Belfort. Let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if this is going to surprise too many people, but Tiago Silva is back in the UFC uh, after charges against him were dropped. You'll remember that he had some pretty serious charges uh, filed against him. Yes, uh, indeed. In Very regards serious. to, you know, allegedly brandishing a gun uh, at his ex-wife and another jiu-jitsu practitioner. Uh, and, uh, you know, was in a, an armed standoff basically with a SWAT team until they came in and got him and tased his ass and then put him in jail, uh, charges him and dropped because, uh, uh, according to the, the district attorney, his, his ex-wife has been uncooperative and has maybe left the country. Uh, Which is the same as being proved innocent, right? (laughs) Well, he seems to think so, and so does Dana White, who says, quote, He went through the legal process and came out of it untainted. He deserves to be able to make a living again. He's back under contract. Are you fucking kidding me? That's not the same as going through the legal process and coming out untainted. That's, we couldn't get uh, this person who you allegedly abused to file charges against you and to stick with it, uh, possibly because they were fucking terrified of you. Uh, and so we had to drop the charges. That's not coming out untainted. Uh, even though Tiago Silva thinks it is, and as he told Ariel Helwani on the Fortnite, people will forget they always do. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? That's what like an evil villain says in a fucking cartoon, man. Yep. That's not the that's not the right quote that you want to see show up in all the headlines if you're Tiago Silva. Did you see the interview he had with Helwani? I have not watched it. He comes off as clearly lying and really disingenuous <laughs> and, and 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 like you if you if you don't like Tiago Silva before you watch this, your opinion of him will not improve after you see him address these concerns. Also, Dana White Jason High shoves a ref. You don't even need to see it. That's a no-brainer to cut his ass. Tiago Silva gets the charges against him dropped because they can't find his ex-wife for the trial, and he deserves to be able to make a living. Are you fucking kidding me? 
Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, as you just adeptly pointed out, there were a lot of are you fucking kidding me worthy stuff happening this week in mixed martial arts. One, though, obviously reigns supreme over the other, and that is that it's wholly unbelievable to me that the UFC sells on its website a UFC logo hot dog brander, and nobody, nobody has bought one and sent it to the CME yet. What are you saying? Hot dog brand? What? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, look it up online. It's like a metal thing. You get it hot. You press it against a hot dog and it will brand your hot dog with the UFC's logo. But not our barbecues, not the co-main event podcast barbecues. We're just going to be sitting over here looking like jerks with our regular non-UFC logo branded hot dogs. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for nothing. So, wait, your Are You Fucking Kidding Me is to our listeners yes. for not sending us this. Yes. And not to whoever made it. First of all, what, why is it specifically a hot dog brand? Thinking what, outside just, the box. It would be too just, easy to do, give the Are You Fucking Kidding Me to the guy who made the hot dog brander. What you're describing sounds like it could brand many items, not just hot dogs. Why is it just a hot dog brander? Well, you, I'm gonna, I'll tell you what. We're going we're gonna to move on to round number two. And you while, in, while we're doing our break, you can look up the hot dog brander and see what you think. You bet I will. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number two. And the weekend bed, I swear it's not enough for you. Why do we act like lovers do? Wrapped up in a towel, stretching every foul. What a silly point of view. Why do we act like lovers do? Why do we act Chad, I'd like to start round two by reading you a quote from Justin the Insane One McCulley. Oh, I was hoping we would do this Master Tweet Theater style, or maybe I would have to guess who the quote was by. He told MMA Junkie Radio regarding his masked, unmasking confrontation with Tito Ortiz alongside the Stefan Bonner in the Bellator cage on Friday night, quote, We stamped our name on the game one more time. We went out there and shocked the world and did something that nobody's done, and it worked like a charm. Oh, really, fool? (laughs) In what way did it work like a charm, Chad? I have no idea. I have no idea. Here's what I saw when I I heard about this video through social media and all that stuff, and I went back and I looked it up. I saw Stephen Bonner standing there in a finely cut suit alongside a man in a weirdo mask. And then they pulled off that mask, and there was a dude in cornrows, and I wasn't quite sure who it was, and I kept expecting them to say who it was, and they never did. And then Bonner and Tito both exchanged words that seemed obviously scripted, because neither one of them is usually that eloquent off the cuff. Uh, and I don't even think that they were that eloquent in their remarks. And then uh, a... A physical confrontation ensued that also made me think that that was also staged. Uh, and then at last the whole thing was over and I was wondering, what the fuck was that? What was that? How did that work like a charm? Everybody's talking about how it seemed ridiculous and staged. Was that, is that a charm? Well, I have some, I have complicated feelings about this because obviously this was just incredibly stupid. But in a way, it kind of makes me feel bad for Bellator because this is another situation where I feel like this is just it makes it easy for us to kick Bellator while it's down. Whereas I feel like if uh, this 
exact spot would have gone down in pride like five or ten years ago and justin mcculley came into the big weird white ring wearing that like dr death mask and and stefan bonner unmasked him and nobody knew what was going on like we would all think fondly of it if that had happened in pride we would all be like oh crazy pride doing their unmasking justin mcculley that was that was nuts Uh, happens in bellator obviously a different environment Uh, american mma not quite as receptive to those kind of theatrics and everybody loses their damn mind about how weird it is uh and it was weird and it didn't work like a charm because nobody knows who justin mcculley is so i don't know what he's talking about at the same time though we are talking about it and i feel like that raises the question while this, the beginning of the Scott Coker era certainly looks different over in Bellator than maybe we were expecting, is Bellator still at the point where any publicity is good publicity? Man, that's a good question, because I'd like to say no. I'd like to say that this was not good publicity for it, and yet... Maybe that's me giving the mass of MMA fans, particularly the ones who just think like, hey, there, it's Friday, there might be fights on Spike TV, even if I don't know what the hell it is or who's fighting, I'll just turn it on. Maybe for them, this really worked. Maybe it did work like a charm on those people. Uh, for me personally, I mean, I already don't really care to see Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz fight each other. That does not, that doesn't really move me very much. Uh, and you know, you got, you have Scott Coker out there calling them both quote MMA Hall of Famers, which come on, Scott Coker, you we know, know there ain't what no you such, mean. there ain't no such damn thing as an MMA Hall of Famer. Uh, but okay, you know, they go out there, they do that stuff. It's just weird. It also though, like, I mean, I know that they're swearing up and down, that there was nothing like scripted about it, uh, all that stuff. But to me, you do something like that. And afterwards, I feel like if I get on board with that, I'm a mark, you know, like I've just been I've been swindled into the tent. To me, it's worse. I mean, I know Scott Coger said he swore in his father's grave that he didn't know that they were going to brawl. And that maybe I believe maybe that he didn't know that they were going to take it to a physical level. But clearly you knew what was going to happen. Otherwise, the dude wearing the scary Dr. Death mask wouldn't have been in the cage, right? Like, isn't it worse to presume that Bellator didn't know and that any of this was going to happen and still allowed a guy in a suit and a scary mask to go into the cage and stand next to Stefan Bonner during this interview with Tito Ortiz? Because, you know, as much criticism as we heap at the feet of the UFC, which, frankly, in most cases deserves it, uh, there's no way on God's green earth that Dana White would let a guy in a scary death mask go into the cage and stand there for an interview unless he knew exactly who that guy was and exactly what he was doing. That's true. Because this, because if they didn't know that was going to happen and they still let scary death mask guy go in the cage, that makes me feel like Scott Coker learned nothing from the original brawl. That's the original <laughs> brawl that was on uh, network television and, and caused a big to do. And they said they weren't going to allow people to go in the cage anymore. Well, you tell me, <laughs> man. You tell me. Well, yeah. You know, and Scott Coker's, his, his, uh, his talk about this afterwards, uh, I, I think was, was interesting because he was saying that, you know, that he, he was swearing that, that it was not scripted, that he didn't know it was going to happen, that he told him, look, we're going to get fined, uh, by the, the Mohegan tribe if there is, uh, a fight. But here's his quote about, you know, what he was thinking before this stuff was happening. Um, you know, he said, said he told Stefan Bonner, told, told Tito that they're going to get fined if they, if they touch each other. So don't do that. Uh, 
I walked over to Stefan Bonner, and as I was walking by, I see a guy with a mask. I thought, who the heck is this guy? I was busy, but I went to Stefan and I said, <laughs> we're all going to get fined. You guys don't like each other. Please don't touch each other. I mean, I don't know how busy you have to be to walk by, you know, see these guys who are about to get in the cage. You're concerned with what's going to happen enough to talk to them and tell them not to touch each other. But then you see a guy in a mask and you're like, well, normally I would inquire further. Uh, however, I have a lot of stuff to do just now. I mean, suddenly I feel like that's the, the moment where uh, I say, wait a minute, dude in a mask. That's unusual. That takes precedence for me right now. Let me find out what's going on with the guy in the mask. We're not, we don't do a national television show here for the co-main event podcast yet. Uh, but I gotta be honest with you. If you showed up to my house to record this podcast alongside a scary dude in a mask, <laughs> I would be like, you know what? We're not doing it till I find out who the guy in the mask is and exactly what he's doing. You here. don't feel like I could at least get through like the first three minutes without, you know, no, before cause I... you don't have that political capital with me. <laughs> you don't have that. Let's, let me, let me ask you this though. Uh, the scary mask dude thing happens, whatever. Uh, in addition to that, uh, in spite of that, is this a good event for Bellator? Is this a good Bellator event? Uh, they put on a bunch of squash matches and all of the guys that they got that they, that they, uh, you'd assume that they would want to win. One, they got wins for Czech Congo, Bobby Lashley, and Muhammad Lawal. And, uh, then you have a resurgent Tamden McCrory. The barn cat! Who what? I believe is a guy that we could talk about and make some, some, some surprising but maybe, uh, relevant points about Bellator. And then, I don't know if you got a chance to see the main event, Patricio Ferrer against Pat Curran. But that was a damn good fight and entertaining and fun to watch. And they crowned a new champion. And uh, I think that there's a lot of storylines about whether or not Pat Curran is, was, or, you know, the guy that we thought he was. And maybe he's in decline, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so Bellator has this event where all the guys you think that they would want to win, win. And yet we're all talking about Justin McCulley wearing a scary death mask. Is this a win for Bellator, a loss, or does this just not mean anything? You know, I feel like... In, in some other circumstances, maybe you have some stuff that gets people in the door paying attention and then they notice you have a bunch of good fights on display. But this is one where it's something like you only hear about it afterwards, right? That there was a dude in a mask and there was a, a brawl that ensued. True. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it makes like that's not something that makes people go, but I should probably look up the fights from that event because it seems just so bizarre and so unrelated. Like the thing that comes out, like you pretty much guarantee that the one thing people have to address when they write about it the next day and when they're talking about it on, on forums and stuff is, holy shit, did you see that guy in the mask? Did you see all that shit that happened? Like I think that it, it's a bad thing in that sense because it kind of dominates the, the headlines and the conversation uh, instead of people saying, hey, you know what? There's actually uh, some some pretty good action there, some pretty good fights. And like guys like Tam Dan McCrory where you can see like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe these are the kind of guys okay, yes, that, that you can get a hold of and do something. With. That's what I want to talk to you about because, you know, as much attention as we give guys like Muhammad Lawal and Bobby Lashley and even Czech Congo, like is the type of dude that Bellator should be scouring the earth trying to find Tamden McCrory, the barn cat. There's only one barn cat. The guy, but I mean, I'm in this mold, these guys that uh, had at one time fought in the UFC and were not contenders, but were guys that for whatever reason had like chipped out this little niche in the sport and people were like, oh, Tamden McCrory, the barn cat. I know who he is. He seemed kind of nerdy and awesome and I liked him. Oh, he's going to fight in Bellator and knock out Brennan Ward in 21 seconds? Awesome. Is that a viable thing for Bellator to try to do? Because I think, you know, anywhere you go, you're going to have a ceiling. 
if you're Bellator, of being the the second best MMA promotion in America, like, is there a viable market and a niche to be carved out in in trying to find dudes like Tandon McCrory? I think there is, and especially I think there's an opportunity because uh, of the UFC, especially now that uh, the roster is so big, so many different divisions, and there's a lot of you know trying new people out, cutting people, and they don't work out. So the UFC is going to run the risk of cutting somebody too soon, making a decision on somebody too soon, just because of the the numbers at work. Uh, and that's I think the guys that you can you know you can seize on because. Uh, you know, a guy like Tam Dan McCrory started fighting when he was really, really young, stepped back for a while, I think to, to finish college. Uh, and then if you can go and see what that guy's up to now and it turns out like, oh, he's actually matured and he's kind of awesome now. Well then, yeah, like then that's the perfect mix of like people know him from the UFC stuff, but they don't know him because he was with the UFC until he was washed up and you got him at the tail end of, of anything resembling a career. You know, there's still something to breathe some life back into there. Uh, I think it's different with other guys, but I think also, I don't know how many of those guys there are out there right now. And I also wonder like, you still have the problem if you're Bellator of going to those guys because a lot of those guys they they get cut from the UFC once their goal is always let me go back to the small shows let me win a couple and then maybe Joe Silva will call again when you're getting that guy to sign with Bellator aren't you pretty much asking him to say hey you're probably not going to get back in the UFC or not anytime soon uh, your future has got to be somewhere else and I don't know if a whole lot of those guys would want to agree with that I think a lot of them are going to want to hold out for the UFC. Maybe, but it also might be hard to turn down the money if Bellator's willing to loosen the purse strings even a little bit. Uh, you know, you could financially make it worth those guys' while to come over to Bellator, especially a guy like Tandon McCrory, who has been out of the UFC for several years, and even if they don't want to admit it in public, have got to be asking them th- themselves the question way in the back of their mind, like, what if that call never comes? Yeah. You know, Scott Coker shows up offering you eight or $10,000 to come take a fight on Spike TV, I don't know, man. That seems like it might be kind of hard to turn down if it was me and I was in that position. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I as a person watching Bellator, I'd much rather see guys like Tam Dan McCrory than to see you just, you know, pick up Czech Congo and, and guys like that who it seemed like we kind of learned all we needed to learn about right. them uh, in their their UFC runs. But I mean, it's it's also it's a difficult balance because those guys are more known because they were in the UFC longer or you know were were reached a different level in the UFC. Um, but then by the time you're Bellator and you get your hands on them, there's not as much left of their careers. A guy like Tam Dan Bacori, it seems like maybe you could build something on. Also, am I completely misremembering this, or did Tam Dan Bacori? Did he gain a little bit of notoriety when he was in the UFC when it was revealed that he had uh, auditioned or tried out or submitted an application to be on one of the, those pickup artist shows? Do you remember that? Yes, as well? I think that's true. I think that's the. I think you've got that right. I think that's the same guy. But uh, that's the story I want to hear about. Maybe Bellator will do a promo on it, man. You know, I wouldn't put it past him. How's his negging skills these days? You think? I, I assume he's throwing sweet negs. Uh, you know what? That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I know that by now you must have seen Ben Askren's strange appearance on Access TV's Inside MMA from last Friday night. 
uh, where he he tried to give what I would describe as like kind of a run of the mill Ben Askren interview at this point, where he lays out his his case against the UFC and and talks up one FC and 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 talks about how he's going to make a career fighting elsewhere and doesn't know if he really wants to to go back and fight in the UFC. Uh, and Kenny Rice and Boss Rudin kind of weren't having it and uh, asked a couple of questions in a tone that I would describe as incredulous. And then, uh, for whatever reason, Kenny Rice seemed to get real nervous and, uh, kind of shut the whole thing down, pulled the plug on, uh, on the interview, uh, told Ben Askren they had to quote unquote shut down the soapbox and, uh, kind of ushered him out the door before it seemed like he was done. Uh, kind of turned into a little media kerfuffle this past week. Seemed like a win-win for Ben Askren to me because the Axis uh, Fight CEO later issued an apology. Uh, really, the only thing that happened, in my opinion, is that Ben Askren got a chance to go out there and say his piece and then get the plug pulled on him like he's too hot for TV, uh, which kind of makes Ben Askren seem awesome as far as I'm concerned. It does. Uh, I wrote a thing on Bleacher Report this week asking the question, uh, is it legitimate to ask if Ben Askren is the most interesting thing going on in MMA right now? And is it legitimate to answer, uh, kind of yes? Uh, the most interesting thing in MMA that covers a lot of territory. I don't most know. interesting character, I think is what I said. Like, is he the most, is he the most interesting guy right now? If you look around the landscape, like who is more interesting than Ben Askren right now? Uh, I don't know if it's so much that Ben Askren himself is interesting, but the situation is interesting and promises to get more so. I, I think that's the appealing thing about it is you really want to see where this is going to go. And it kind of is starting to seem like uh, maybe Ben Askren is crazy like a fox at this point. Uh, but it, it, it was that, that was the weird thing to me about that interview, as you mentioned, is that he's saying stuff that is that doesn't seem really like an uncommon criticism of Dana White in the UFC, uh, especially from a fighter outside of it. Uh, it doesn't seem completely unreasonable or crazy or so far off base. Uh, seems like a, a pretty valid opinion that you could see where he's coming from, even if you don't totally agree with him. And Kenny Rice is just kind of like chuckling and shaking his head, uh, like he can't believe what he's hearing. Oh, isn't this guy wacky? Like that to me was the part where I, I his reaction to what we were hearing seemed totally bizarre. Yeah, it was totally bizarre. Uh, and you know, not the kind of reaction you would expect from those guys either, who I don't think have really ever shied away from, uh, that kind of discussion on their show before. Like, I mean, that, you know, people have gone on inside MMA and, and aired various grievances against various people. And, and well, I can't recall a specific situation, but I'm certain that people have gone on there and, and been critical of the UFC and, and surprising that, that Kenny Rice and Boss Rudin reacted this way. And, you know, today Boss Rudin posted a, a, a statement about it on his Facebook page. I saw that. Where it kind of seemed like he made a, tried to make it sound like it was all because Ben Askren was running over his time. Yeah. Uh, that he had gone over his like four minutes or whatever, his five minutes. Uh, and I gotta be honest, you know, boss, that's not how it looked when you watch the video. It, it looked like, uh, Kenny Rice was nervous that they were getting into territory that he didn't want to get into or whatever and, uh, kind of pulled the plug prematurely was my takeaway. Well, it also seems weird, like when, you you got the guy on there and you're asking him questions about, you know, his opinions, basically his opinions on the UFC and where he stands and, and all that stuff can't, you know, where his career is. And then to refer to that as you have to shut down the soapbox as if like, how dare you get on here and, and, and use this as a platform question. to express your opinions. That's why you had him on. Right. What the, what, like, what did you expect him to say? And I, like the thing that uh, Boss Rutten was trying to say was that, 
A, they were running over time, and B, you know, he wasn't answering the questions or was just kept repeating the same points. And that's not how it looked to me as a viewer. It looked like, you know, he was dealing with the questions, uh, but the questions were kind of the same, like, hey, just trying to get him to admit, don't you need the UFC? Don't you need to go into the UFC? Uh, isn't that where the only place you can go to be the best? Don't you want to be the best? Stuff. I mean, like when you're asking him those questions that are all very similar, uh, like as far as the, the thread that we're following there, I don't know how you can be terribly surprised if the answers kind of circle around the same point. I mean, I think everything Ben Askren said there is completely reasonable. I, I do too. I think one of the things that's in, that is interesting about him is that his criticisms of the UFC, for the most part, have the ring of truth. I mean, I feel like there was a couple of times during this inside MMA interview where he referred to Dana White as a chameleon, where it kind of sounded like he was starting to, to, crossover into trash talk rather than just like offering a, a valid criticism. But like most of the things he says about the UFC are pretty valid. And, you know, I think that that's the thing that's most interesting about Ben Askren is that when he decided or when the UFC didn't offer him a contract back in December and he went and signed with one FC, like I said, in the intro, I think there was a lot of, of thought uh, by us and other people in this industry that like maybe he was just going to fade into the woodwork and would go like fight on these uh, digital streams from, from the Philippines and, 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 you know, Singapore. And uh, we wouldn't really hear that much from him again, from him anymore, but it's kind of been the opposite. And that this is the thing that I think is so interesting about him is that he's been able like to position himself as almost the UFC's unofficial ombudsman. Like he's going to offer these critiques of the UFC and like he's certainly positioned himself opposite Dana White uh, in terms of this like war of words that he's having. And he appears to me to have more momentum and interest in him now than he ever had, uh, you know, in the three years that he spent as Bellator welterweight champion. Uh, and, you know, to top it off, he's won four straight fights by stoppage. So I don't think it's as easy to make the argument anymore that he's just a boring wrestler that we that we don't want to watch fight and he's doing all of this a without the ufc b without a real american broadcast partner uh and c up until very recently without very much fan support and to me that's just like kind of remarkable that he's been able to pull that off well and that it's 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 working. It's continuing to work for him. And it seems like now it's kind of a snowball effect because as he said, uh, as he told uh, MMA Junkie Radio uh, after it all happened, he was talking about it and he said, here's this quote. I was kind of pissed about it at first, but I didn't think it was a huge deal. But I have never seen my Twitter feed, my mentions so busy as they were. Honestly, it's still going on. I looked at my Twitter a little while ago and people are still bitching at Kenny. So, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, that I think, you know. That's the best possible position you can be in if you're Ben Askren right now. You know, that people are just kind of rallying around you as like this, this renegade Robin Hood figure in MMA. Uh, and he's using it exactly as well as you could hope. You know, like even if it's going to be one of these things where I think people sometimes forget, like they'll, they'll say, Oh, you know, we want exciting fighters. This guy's a boring fighter, something like that. And they kind of forget how many times they've been willing to forget about that if the person seemed interesting enough. Yeah. I mean, you look at guys like Chael Sonnen or even Randy Couture at times who were like when they actually got in there in the cage and got after it, it wasn't always the most exciting thing you've ever seen. But the man was interesting enough. The personality was interesting enough that they either didn't think of it the same way or didn't care or it just changed in their memories. And I think Ben Askren is becoming that kind of person. 
Yeah, he, he's you, when you watch his interviews, he definitely has a little bit of Chael Sonnen in him without the all of the ugly personal baggage so far. Um, I tell you what, man, if I'm Bellator, I would be trying my hardest right now to get that guy back, to get him out of this two-year, four-fight uh, contract that he signed with 1FC. And frankly, if I was the UFC, I'd be trying to get him. I can't believe that uh, you know they don't look at, at what he can do in an interview and even look at his feud with Dana White. And like, I can't believe that they're kind of not able or seemingly not able. Maybe they are able. I guess Dana White in a recent interview said that uh, he was kind of becoming more interested in, in Ben Askren. But that was before Ben Askren said he didn't know if he wanted to go there. If I'm the UFC, I, I put aside this like personal beef that we have and realize like, dude, this guy is an interesting talker on the mic who's going to come into your organization, probably beat some guys in your top 10, maybe even top five, uh, and say outlandish things on the mic, some of which maybe uh, are, are going to be critiques of the owner. Yeah. Like, how could you not look at that and say, this guy is is gold? Like, we need this guy. Yeah, and and I guess that will be kind of a, a, a telling point to see how much of uh, the decision not to sign a guy is, you know, one man's ego, uh, one one guy's one powerful man's feeling about the guy? Uh, because I think that even if you take aside the the actual like possibilities for a guy like this to really get fan interest going and, and really create like kind of an interesting rivalry with his own boss, a la Stone Cold Steve Austin. Even if you put that aside, I think that the fact that the UFC has just shunned Ben Askren. Uh, it's kind of, that's kind of an indictment of the UFC and its position in the sport in a lot of ways because I don't think anybody doubts that Ben Askren would come in there and wreck a lot of UFC welterweights at this yeah. point. I mean, whether you think he'd be champion or not, you have to admit he beats a lot of those guys. Yeah, and, he does. and if you're saying, well, we're not interested in the guy just because, I don't know, I don't like him, I don't like the things he says, or I don't like his fighting style or something, then it really pokes holes in your, this is where the best fight the best claim that the UFC loves to try it out, that Dana White loves to try it out. If you were saying like, hey, this guy is good, everybody knows he's good, but we just don't want him because, eh, you know, various reasons like that makes it look like oh wait this isn't so much a real sport as it is just like one guy picking the people he likes and throwing them in there and, and giving them some money uh, I mean, I think that that's something that, that I would be concerned about if I were the UFC. And I'm, I misspoke earlier. Uh, ben Askren actually signed a two-year six-fight deal with 1FC. He's had two fights already, so he's got four more left. Uh, so I don't know, man. In a, in a year and a half, if he continues to clean up on these guys that we've maybe never heard of before and beat them by first-round stoppage, Seems to me like he's going to be in a pretty good bargaining position uh, when he comes out the other side of that 1FC contract. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for the for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, uh, I saw this on uh, on Middle Easy. One of the Twitter followers pointed it out to me, and then I followed it back to the original interview where uh, it's uh, lastwordonsports.com talking to Joe Riggs about the incident wherein he shot himself in his own home uh, and sounds like maybe nearly killed himself on accident. And, you know, the original story was, you know, the old cleaning a gun and it went off kind of thing. And Joe Riggs wanted to, to clarify that, said that that was not true, that actually what had happened was, you know, he, he brought his gun with him to the gym like you do. Right. In your backpack. Yeah, no big right. deal. That's right. Um, and one of his friends had cocked the gun while they're at the gym. Uh, so that's already a weird thing. Uh, like he puts it, he puts it back in his bag to take it home. Uh, after practice, he's at home. He is uh, seemingly naked from his description, watching The Bachelor, eating blueberries while trying to take the gun apart 
and a round gets lodged in there and it goes off and, uh, you know, hits him in the leg and he's bleeding all over the place. I'm just saying, if that's what had happened to me, if I had shot myself while naked eating blueberries, watching The Bachelor and trying to take a gun apart, I wouldn't tell anybody that. I would let them think that I was the another kind of idiot, the kind that just was cleaning a, a loaded gun and it went off. That's just me. Just I'm just saying. saying. Ben, I'm just saying that this weekend, as you know, Andre Arlovsky fights Antonio Bigfoot Silva. Uh, that fight is going to go down on thefightpass.com. Uh, a fine main event for 2014, I guess. But I'm just saying, if you had this bout in July of 1996 as part of the UFC 10 heavyweight tournament, which also included Mark Coleman, Don Fry, Gary Goodridge, and Brian Johnson. Oh, and, and Mark Hall, uh, to name a couple. Would either of these guys go on to win that tournament? I'm going to say no. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to tell you what happened in, during the Andre Arlovsky Bigfoot Silva fight and look ahead to some more fun stuff coming up in the world of mixed martial arts. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So when you say we're going to come back and, and tell you what happened in that fight, you mean you're going to ask me what happened because I have fight pass, and then you're going to rely on me to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account? I'm saying we are going to stamp our names on the game one more time, and it's going to work like a charm. That's all I'm saying. How many previous times did Justin McCauley thinks that, that he had been a part of stamp?